Welcome back to SideQuest, episode 33, Final Fantasy VII, episode 21. Back with me after our long, quick Christmas break full of video games and real games and travel, Mr. Wesley Chance. Welcome back, sir. Hey, it's good to be back. I got to say, we actually took our Switch with us on our trip and ended up not playing it until we got back. Um, but we have been playing it since we got back. It's uh, It's interesting to try to balance you know like all of the leisure activities that are at your fingertips these days to to do them uh in a way that is you know sociable uh as much as possible that that keeps you um kind of engaged with new technology and new stuff that's out there uh like the new super smash brothers game which is rad uh but also you know gives you kind of that that respite as well from being social from being out there in the world like just kind of curling up and, and reading a good book, you know, playing games like that, that sort of thing. Well, thing. well I so after the trip, it was really nice to do that. I and I completely agree, and I think it's fantastic that you didn't play it while you were out traveling because there are other bigger, broader games. Some might say realer, ontologically speaking, games. It exists out there. There's more to explore, or rather, at least with the cost-benefit analysis, uh, there are things to do there that you could not otherwise do without being there, and you're there for such a finite amount of time. So, you know, why not just play the video game when you get back? But I've had a few deep revelations about video games, just like what you just said. And it's funny that games like Kingdom Hearts and so often fantasy and, uh, you know, Final Fantasy and RPG games start in sort of estuary-like, idyllic, Edenic sort of farm towns. And we could ask one of our guests coming up soon and something the the um our listeners should know is that we're gonna have a lot of guests coming up this next month uh it looks like we have something like four guests lined up Wes and uh before we say too much about that because you know I like to lose my thoughts because I try and make them long like old high German construction it's very Kantian of me is uh <laughs> is um that I, I think video games are precisely that and because I was thinking about the social nature of them when you bring up uh, Super Smash Brothers and their relationship to Christmas and my Christmases and uh, sharing excellent, wonderful moments of expectation and current joy with my friends after playing uh, physically or like going to the gym and then uh, relaxing by, you know, competing now in a virtual world. But I was thinking about how part of, I don't, experience as much nostalgia now playing Final Fantasy VII because I, I think what a video game is is that sort of uh, simplified world in which the path of the hero is laid out for you in specifically achievable steps. And the world is like almost, and I think this is a fine achievement in video games, like, like the world that the Buddha's father constructs for the Buddha. It's this perfect world in which you only experience a very limited amount of chaos, but there is a lot of meaning to your actions and things work out the way they're supposed to. And so it's, it's, it's very much like a, a world made for you by a paternal and loving father in which you cannot actually get hurt. But what you're supposed to learn from the video game and what the path of the hero so frequently is in the game is that you need to go beyond that boundary. You have to go beyond that perception of the child. And I think that's also what our generation and what every generation does as they go from being the child who has the sort of image of the perfect reality 
with some cracks, obviously, which makes people angry, um, given to them, like the idea of James Potter casting the Patronus that gets the Dementors knocked away in the third movie um, and, or book, <laughs> more importantly, um, but that one has to, and this is something we've really been circling around, and so possibly I thought this through just because of this long break, had some time to digest it, and uh, is that you then have to go beyond that perception of the world as sort of Eden or a place where everything just works because it does. And you you have to be the become the person that, that casts the Patronus, that casts the spell for the next son uh, who, who, you know, casts the protective net. And that sort of what people seem to have forgotten and in, in like, failed to develop to the level of maturity to see with these video games is that you're not supposed to stay in a place where you love video games in the same way as you did as a child, as an adult. That you're not, that the world you get lost in as a child, well, that's actually the world, you know, that's a model of the world that you can then uh, deal with because you're just a child. As an adult, the world is what you're expected to confront and to deal with. And so to retreat simply to video games, I think is, is a pathology. And I think that's sort of what the pathology of nostalgia is. And it's funny in confronting this, how I've sort of started to cure myself of that. And, you know, that's something, I know that was very long, Wes, I'm sorry. I hope it made some sense. Um, and because that's, I've really been, dealing with that over this break because it's been fun to play the video game and I feel like I did when I was very young, but I also feel like, ah, uh, yes, well, I understand now as an adult with other things to do and other responsibilities why one has to sort of outgrow um, <clears throat> not video games, but one's perception of video games that one had when one was young. And video games have to occupy a different place for one. Yeah, I mean, I think the the activity of engaging with the game um, on a more intellectual or philosophical level is probably a good process uh, to to think through some of that. And the the question about like how best to play the game is one that doesn't really arise right as as a kid at all. It's not really on the table, um, and so. I think simply to even ask that question is a good uh, indication that you're you're probably moved beyond that that um, simple enjoyment. The the nostalgic aspect of it um, is still, I think, going to be bound up with the activity of thinking about it because you have to choose which things are worth thinking about in the first place. They're probably going to be the ones that meant something to you, right? And so I I don't know that that can be entirely, um, you know cast aside uh, in the in the analysis, but I agree that it can't be the, the predominant um, mode of sort of wallowing in it either. Uh, the point about the, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say that it, it's almost yeah. like that initial nostalgia is what drew me in, but it's conscientiousness that's pushing me on now. It's like, I don't feel that initial like sort mm -hmm. of like soul, soul like, tendril drawing me off towards this that sort of creative feeling of desire but i'm just moving but i yeah 
I think I think you're you're probably right too, and I'm not. I don't want to disagree with that. So, what was your next point? Just going back to your uh, comment about the the initial starting points of a lot of games. Um, it's interesting that Final Fantasy VII doesn't have such a sort of calm, tranquil uh, hometown sort of place that you actually start in at the game. Like you do have that cutscene back to it shortly after the beginning, where you're talking to Tifa and remembering um, that moment with her. But even that is then called into question here as we find out more about Cloud's memories, right? And and how right. they've they're sort of a parasitic um, thing that he he's acquired from Tifa. Uh, so that that is like I think one of the big ways that Final Fantasy VII sort of distinguished itself from the very beginning was that it had a, a more mature feel to it and, it and it called into question a lot of the um, simpler um, kinds of tropes and things that um, a lot of RPGs, uh, video games and things had, had sort of played with up to that point. Yeah, and just a couple things about that is that means that his starting point is literally a false dream, sort of like how we all have a sort of idyllic notion about a golden age in the past, but also they're pursuing a future slash perfect state called the promised land. So there's sort of that ancient mythology, epic cycle of history, uh, but with a psychological sort of negative spin put on it, uh, like a delusional version of that, which I think is either, is obliquely supported by like, the image on the front cover that we have is our anchor image. You know, it's the image that was on the original CD with the Mako reactor rising in the top distance and in the foreground cloud turned away from us as if we can't even see his face, as if he is like a faceless nobody like Odysseus. And, um, with this giant sword, but we find that that sword's not his. And so it's interesting because again, we find sort of an inversion of major RPG values because it is another person's sword. And of course, most RPGs that are fantasy based, you get some sort of legendary sword, which was some other heroes from the past. And that's technically true. This is the sword of another soldier who is the highest class of fighter in this world. But it's, it's not positive because there's not a true recognition that this is the sword of somebody from the past, that this was somebody else's, that this is an imitative act. There's a, a falseness to it, a belief that, and, and we, we believe when we first buy this game, in fact, we're the ones duped, that this is this guy's sword. But actually we find out that he's just a much less skilled, like weirdo imitating parasite creature that's trying to <laughs> wield the sword of some much better like more human-like man. Um, it's a very, it, it just, it plays with also that notion of Genova, that corrupting fantasy uh, ability. It's, I think that might, must be part of the power of this game and its ability to draw us into the past nostalgically, just to be sort of literary for a moment here, is that this game, like Genova embodied within it, has a the ability to take the form of our family members and to draw on our own past and, and to appear to us in whatever way it needs to in order to draw us into like a dark or delusional fantasy or back into a past that no longer exists, like a Booth Rotom from book three of the Aeneid. 
it's especially when you think about the way that this game's um, kind of posthumous life has has played out, where there's been you know uh, multiple attempts uh, to to recreate it, essentially, right? There, there's a full blown remake um, that's released for it, which is pretty unusual uh, in the, the in the Final Fantasy series. Uh, although I guess it's not entirely unprecedented. The the thing about um, this part of the game, which I think is probably the most odd, you know, or salient thing about it, you don't play as Cloud. Um, he's out of the picture, and so you're kind of jumping back and forth between uh, Tifa and Barrett. And uh, it's a re there's a lot that happens here in a pretty short amount of time of actual gameplay. Uh, and of course, we're sort of still in the midst of this this great turmoil, um, which is punctuated by lots and lots of cinematic cutscenes and things. So um, to just like pick up where we left off, we uh, were at a safe point uh, halfway down the staircase in, in Junon, um, in their kind of like military headquarters where everyone's um, hunkered down waiting for a weapon to attack. It's like you hear about how it's been rampaging and running amok and how uh, Rufus, of all people, has been, you know, bravely out there trying to fight against it uh, with, you know, very little success. Uh, and then uh, you're, you're about to be uh, executed, is what he informs you, <laughs> at the uh, behest of the PR department, it sounds like. They think that having being somebody to blame for all this is going to help um, their, you know, final days before complete annihilation go a little smoother for them. Uh, <laughs> and I thought that was just kind of over the top um, send up, right? Of even in the 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 Holocaust of of the planet destroying itself, the PR department can only think about finding someone to blame so that they don't look quite as bad, right? Um, I don't know what did you, what did you make of this whole this whole little scenario here? Well, I would say that that is psychologically sound reasoning, if not ethical use of the media, um, just because it is true that if you give people a more proximate issue to focus on, uh, you know, the source of evil being, of course, being, the, being this person, which they can then solve through a public execution, people will uh, feel a sense of relief because there will be thus a reduction of evil in the world, even though the very pressing problem of meteor coming to destroy them, they will have gained no traction on. And so it's interesting, I'm reading this book right now, The Black Swan, um, by this guy, Talib, who was a, a trader on Wall Street, I think, and is now a, a professor, uh, though he, he has some derision for academics, which is interesting. Um, he, uh, I'm sorry, I, I, I'm thinking about him now just because it's so interesting, I'm, I'm, I'm losing, my entire point, like usual, um, but I sorry. Think it was sorry. about scapegoats or something. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, Does he have a, he, a point he, about, yeah, about he, he like Kurzweil makes makes uh, the point that sort of humans and and also height makes this point that you know we have these two ways of thinking that there's this one intuitional sort of sensational way of thinking thinking and he gives some examples like. So if you were asked what, what is a more common cause of death in America, 
um, like earthquakes in California or like floods in the Midwest, you might be tempted to say earthquakes in California because, you know, the biggest ones, like the one from 1985, they've gotten so much publicity that they grab your attention and you might have an emotional reaction to that, which really sets it into your memory. But that it's actually, you know, earthquakes are very infrequent in California, whereas floods and flash floods can happen all the time, especially in places that have thunderstorms like Kansas. And so, you know, your natural way of thinking about the unfolding of events is, is often fairly incorrect. And so, um, and so, and so the way, what, what will make you feel good in the moment is not, and this is of course how addiction works too, is not how, what in the long run will lead you to prosperity. So just to have made a very long point in which I lost my train of thought, uh, uh, <laughs> um, long, I, uh, it's, it's sound reasoning, even though evil reasoning, I would say by the PR department, it will make people feel better. They are right about that. But I think, again, that's the problem with Shinra's approach. They want to, they're always just looking to affect the emotions of the people rather than to lead the people in the appropriate way by giving them the real thing so that their emotions will then be regulated. I, and, and I would say that that's a, that's like the difference in medicine between treating the symptom and treating you know, the, the cause are, and, and probably also in politics and maybe every science, right? That's a, that's a lot, but I, I think the question I was kind of in, interested in was about, was about the scapegoating specifically as a response to this, um, the way that you find some one small thing that you can accomplish um, in the face of a huge problem that you are powerless to deal with, um, that that seems like, on the one hand, you have this uh, Shinra leader out there fighting a uh, a losing battle, right? Which is which is brave, which is admirable in some respects. Um, from Barrett's point of view, at least, he's like grudgingly admiring Rufus for going and fighting weapon on the other hand which you know so he's doing a small thing relative to the size of the actual problem on the other hand then Rufus turns around and says okay we're gonna execute you because uh, we need to gain some some popularity here uh, we need to blame somebody and it seems like in some way that's that's a, a similar kind of response right um, here's one small thing that we do have control over our response uh, here is going to be to try to execute you um, but on the other hand, you know, I feel like they, there's a big difference there somehow as well, um, between those two, those two reactions, right? Like fighting in the face of impossible odds does seem noble and trying to scapegoat the people who've actually been fighting alongside you the whole way seems detestable. Um, but I, I do see your point that, you know, in some sense, those are both gonna appease um, our, our need for, for explanation, our need for uh, control or, or some small kind of sphere of, um, of comfort in the face of uh, the horror. But I also see the essence of what it is that you're saying too, because um, the response in Harry Potter too, when Voldemort starts to come back, 
is, uh, again, to become more fascist, to become more controlling, to become less responsive to the truth. And in fact, in the movies, I believe even in the fourth, it's either the fourth or the fifth, it's the fifth one, um, the fifth movie, there's the major fight between Voldemort and Dumbledore in the mystery of magic. And there's this giant um, tapestry of fudge, you know, sort of looking up. And you find these same sorts of tapestries in Final Fantasy VII. And the problem seems to be with sort of like the political order and Shinra is both a political and a corporate body. They have a, <laughs> a room for the mayor in their corporate office, uh, not even on the top floor. Um, but what, what they seem to do is try and institute control on a situation. And what both of them try and do is they try and destroy the thing that would get them out of the situation and get them back to business as usual. So what both of them seem to do and fail at, this is the Ministry of Magic in Harry Potter as well as uh, Shinra in, in um, Final Fantasy VII, is they try and pretend as if business is as usual. Though Shinra is making some response to this, but they're going about solving the problem in their usual ways. And in so doing, they're trying to repress the Logos or the embodiment of the Logos, which is Harry Potter and Harry Potter or Cloud in this one. And Cloud is conspicuously absent here. And I, I do want to talk about how that does make the game sort of lame at first because you probably put so much effort into him, like you said earlier, like all the sources, luck source, magic source, power source, he's probably received that. He probably took a good bit of magic and material with him too. But um, the response of like sort of the the political body is to become more fascist or controlling uh, to in inverse relation to their actual control of the situation. Like the more anomalous the situation, the more they try and clamp down and control it. And in both situations, you you get a a possible or attempt to destroy the logos or or like I said, the the hero. And so, I think I think that's what you're seeing there again it's as if Shinra's response is of course doomed to failure though we're not in a very good position either everybody just keeps telling uh tifa i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm sorry which was also kind of throwing me off though that jumps a little ahead in our gameplay no yeah i it is interesting how she becomes kind of the central figure there it switches back and forth between her and barrett um but she is so um limited in what she can do here right she's she's absolutely bound hand and foot in the gas chamber it's it's terrifying um and for whatever reason the game uh allows you to to take your time and solve the puzzle there um which is good because uh otherwise you probably wouldn't figure it out in time at least on the first try and that would be extremely frustrating um but it's it's reminiscent for me uh, of the ways that Cloud would be um, controlled by Sephiroth slash Genova, right? Mm -hmm. um, there in those, those scenes with the uh, Black Materia, um, the scenes with Eris, uh, there towards the end of that chapter, you know, you can only move in certain very circumscribed ways. Um, that's sort of like recapitulated here with Tifa in, in her execution scene, um, which again, it becomes a little bit farcical to, to a certain point uh, because you, you can sort of like 
use the buttons that normally you use to do like incredible uh, acrobatic battle sequences, right? Those same buttons now are limited to move your foot, move your right hand, move your left hand, move your head, right? So it's, it's a little bit reductio ad absurdum. Like if you could imagine that being the way the whole game was, yeah, it would be pretty lame. It, it wouldn't be that fun. Um, but it's, it's a weird kind of thought experiment at the same time that it sort of puts you in that position um, of, of, it's like a nightmare, right? Like where in nightmares where you can't move, you can't, you can hardly move or, or you're sort of stuck uh, in embarrassing or, or terrifying situations and you're powerless, right? It, it's like that. And you have this horrible character, uh, Scarlet, who's like laughing at you the whole time. Like she's not gaining anything from this except delight at your pain, right? And suffering, like it's not helping her in any actual way. Um, and yet she's, she's gleeful, you know, that you're in such dire straits, uh, as well. I, I found this, yeah, very, very odd, um, uh, very unsettling. Um, and it's not helped by the fact that you have to have like a slap match with her <laughs> at the end of this, uh, little section here. That, that part too is just sort of bizarre. Um, like what did you deconstruction of the battle sequence. What's that? What did you think about that slap match? Yeah, you don't get a real fight with her, even though you might be yeah. on. Like, and it, it just never materializes. It's really, it's really unsatisfying. It's like uh, you, you, you fighting uh, Rufus way back at the beginning. You know, it's like, how do you not get to uh, finish this guy off? He's he's so puny, and so it's um, a kind of challenge to your sense of yourself or your characters. Uh, actual strength, right? It's like it makes you question a little bit um, what this is all about. Is it is it about you know fighting and battles, or is that actually kind of a maybe a distraction from the kinds of stuff that are uh, a little bit deeper in the game, the the relationships between characters, right? Which, as you say, is is pretty strongly emphasized here. Um, you know, Tifa has been that kind of mainstay for cloud throughout the whole thing and now that cloud's gone you know what is tifa's role like what what does she think about her decisions to maybe lead him on in some ways that might not have been uh helpful actually like what are they going to do now right and and they do sort of decide to go and, and hold on to the hope that he might have survived um it's a little bit abrupt but it, you know that's that's all right uh but yeah she's she's a she's a really interesting character here um and in, in ways that I think make you, again, uh, like with Cloud, question some of the mechanics and some of the themes of, of you know, conventional uh, RPGs. Well, it's interesting, too, because uh, Barrett, like, very rightfully says, when did Cloud become the center of attention, you know? We, we were, you know, without Cloud for some amount of time. So he's, he reminds me sort of of, like, sort of a, like, Jesus figure, right? Like, comes and even when gone is still very much present amongst them as a symbol of the logos shared with them. But what do you think about what Scarlet says to Tifa? She says it multiple times. She said the reason that she seems to hate her is that uh, Tifa is stuck up, stuck up until the end. Where, where do you yeah. think that's coming from exactly? That, that for me uh, is such a strange um, insult to, lo to lob at Tifa. Uh, because she actually has seemed like pretty down to earth the whole time, at least to me. I, I don't know. 
she fights with Jack, her hands. Yeah, right. And um, she's always sort of humble, allow, like allows herself to be a little bit in the in the background of this um, kind of ideal heiress character who shows up um, and and sort of has a more dominant personality in some ways. The the thing about that phrase uh, stuck up being repeated suggests to me that it's it's translating some term there, and that's maybe the best translation for it. But but that's one of the major points that I would be really interested to to look up at some point. Um, what is that that term that it's translating, and like what sort of connotations does it have? What what is going on there with this uh, this conflict between these two uh, female characters, like? I think there might be some more to that 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 would help understand help me understand what's going on here uh, if I could sort of dig into the the language or the culture a bit better uh, it It strikes me you know that they're also fighting on the end of a super phallic image of this giant cannon uh, sticking out from the uh, the top of the city. Uh, so I don't know what to do with that exactly, but it does seem, again, sort of over the top and bizarre um, that that's like the scene for this this uh, conflict. Well, speaking about over the top and perhaps even Final Fantasy and Square at that time being over the top of their uh, desire to use their CGI, let's talk about this weapon and this like sort of um, metaphorical insemination of the ocean, right? So not only do we have that ex extreme phallic masculine image of the gun, but we have this extraordinary uh, image of the ocean and the water, this maternal Tiamat-like image. Um, and so, and we actually have a shot of this like super laser shot into the water. And then we have another shot at weapon. So I guess what I want to ask you about is what, Oh, walk us through and just or and just tell me your thoughts about weapon showing up, the Shinra response, and you know just what's going on here. Because again, there's still meteor in the sky, even no matter how well this fight goes, and just how I guess I just felt very unprepared for this weapon. Uh, personally, without Cloud there, without my team, I felt I felt a very a lack of confidence, a, a reduction in potential and strength and that's something just that you mentioned just to add that on i guess is that i i really felt that reduction in movement like the even the buttons you use no longer have the function they once did like after an injury and how you have to sort of learn to live in a reduced way for a while in order to build your strength back up and i i thought that definitely was a part of this and that i that had an accompanying change in attitude and towards the situation instead of a come what may, like I don't even know how strong this weapon is in terms of HP and stuff, but given the fact that I've been playing this game for a while and this is that black swan thinking again, I could probably beat it. But even now, even though the game is made for me to be able to beat specific situations, when it shows up, I'm like, mm, I don't know about that. Looks pretty tough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, so one strange thing about it too is that it, um, it's, it's laser that it shoots uh, is what cuts open the hole in the, in the gas chamber so that you can actually escape from it as Tifa. Um, so whatever is going on there, it's sort of incorporated into 
this um, the story right of this heroic you know against all odds sort of story um, of of you guys as a as a team um, escaping getting reunited uh, all that good stuff it's again you know super improbable that such a thing should happen uh, you could even s suppose possibly maybe the weapon is doing that on purpose you know to like try to help your party in some weird way. Um, I guess that that seems like a stretch. And anyway, one other weird thing I would just throw out. Weapon of the planet, that'd be interesting. Yeah, yeah, right. One other thing I throw out, and I think you can see this in the name weapon too. Um, it's like all caps, right? And it's, so it's like avalanche. Um, uh, it, it does sort of harken back to that. Uh, now weapon is a man-made thing, but it's actually part of the planet. Avalanche uh, is a human group, and it and it uses the name of something that's natural, right? So there's sort of counterparts in that way. Um, that's I think kind of strange too, because they're both uh, a little strange. They, they seem like they're almost acronyms for something, but it's never explained what that would be. You know, they're, they're sort of clunky, awkward um, as far as names. They aren't exactly singular, they aren't exactly plural, right? Avalanche is like a mass noun and, and weapon is being used the same way here. Um, it's like we have one actual um, giant monster thing attacking us, but um, we use the word weapon to sort of like talk about all four of them at once or like however many there might be um, of the four we saw kind of activated there. Like they're all sort of conflated as weapon, you know, um, under that one heading. So there's a lot of, yeah, linguistic weird things going on there again, which I think are kind of interesting. Um, the, the, the actual scene with the, the firing of the cannon, it's, um, you know, Heidegger up there, uh, and Rufus together who, who are sort of like bravely, you know, facing down their enemy, but you can't actually see the thing, right? They fire it while it's still so far away that it's only their sensors letting them know that it's there. They apparently can't even like change the direction of the cannon, <laughs> you know? Uh, so it's, it's darn fortunate that it's um, like directly ahead of it. Uh, and then of course was like completely ineffective. It, it comes out of the water, comes charging forward, and um, it's only like by this by the greatest uh, luck that they um, can survive long enough to have another shot when its head is you know directly in front of the cannon. So um, it it's a it's a very bizarre uh, kind of little um, battle uh, ambush thing going on here. It definitely feels scary um but again mostly because you're really not in control of anything <laughs> you're kind of at the mercy of your captors here um but they do you know ironically enough uh come out victorious here uh at least momentarily it seems like they have scored a victory over this this weapon but and i think this is sort of the pyrrhic nature of this victory even though it's a, it's not a direct perfect analogy because there's not a lot lost, but I think what's lost here is perspective because I think this is the problem with like the fascist approach, right? 
Like they have a big super laser for if you come down right in front of them and put your head like weapon happens to right in front of it. Like it's a very linear approach to the problem. And so they'll now think that they're successful. And so they'll think that this solution will work in the future, except for of course, the next attack is going to come in a different way. And there's not only an aquatic weapon, there's also an aerial weapon who I noticed this weapon is white, that one is black, this one is in the water, that one is in the sky. And so we have some nice uh, parodies there, like Uranus and Gaia or Uranus and Okeanos and the Greek mythology, just covering, you know, all of nature, the seas, the earth, the heavens. Um, and yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, well, first off, do you agree with that interpretation that that is sort of the problem with the fascist response or uh, solving the problem in one way and then thinking that it is eternally solved? Uh, because obviously they're gonna have to come up with something else to finish this fight. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. And I think there's a lot to that. Like the, um, the goal that they had is, is apparently survival, right? And so even if they do, by some miracle, overcome weapon, they're actually not serving that, that goal in the long run because weapon has been triggered to protect the planet, right? And the meteor that's headed down is really the, the ultimate problem here. <laughs> um, that's like on one level, um, again, sort of funny uh, that they're, they're so sort of myopic. Um, the specifics of this battle, I think, go to illustrate that too. Like you're describing with um, the way that they overcome this particular uh, instantiation of, of their foe, but it's by no means um, a good long-term strategy. Uh, I think that that's reflected also, right, in, in the kind of corporate structure of Shinra that we've seen from the beginning, like their structure as far as their, their goals as, a, as an organization, but also the way that they um, run the organization, right, seems very uh, unsustainable, <laughs> like uh, deeply deleterious to people, to the people within the organization, to the people um, whose lives are ruined by the kind of exploitative practices of the organization. So it's just like, you know, kind of a satire on capitalism, um, a satire on fascism. Uh, it, it really hits a lot of different, uh, you know, a lot of different um, targets here uh, with, with this. And the, the way that this um, concludes is with like maybe the coolest thing that Shinra has got in its, at its disposal um, and uh, becoming sort of like your cool new toy that you get to play with and, and fly around with. It's like, you know, the complete reverse of this limitedness that we've been talking about, uh, this constrained kind of thing that's going on in Junon here. As soon as you leave, you've got the high wind, you can go anywhere, you can fly around, and it's really cool. Well, that's something I really wanted to mention, um, that, again, you have this sort of negative 
moment where you should have a purely positive moment. The moment in the video game when you get full unrestricted range of motion, as you finally do with this this high wind. And we'll later find out that that's not quite entirely true. You really need a golden chocobo to have full, full unrestricted range. But now you can go over dark patches of water. You can go you know, to the North Crater, you can go to the Western continent, the Eastern continent, it's easy. Actually, I wanted to ask you about the first place you went. I, I go, I went to just a house and the, where the Chocobo Sage is in the Northern uh, continent. But again, this is totally overshadowed, literally, by the presence of Meteor, which is in the sky and you can hear, see it. And you have this sort of depressing music. And um, even though you, you should be feeling like this joy of being able to move now in a much freer way, especially than directly before this, when you were like literally, when you were literally imprisoned and chained as both Barrett and um, Tifa chained to the situation, chained to an old way of thinking and physically chained. Um, but now it's almost as if, if flying is a metaphor for developing freedom of the will through developing one's consciousness, and out from self-consciousness uh, to see one's self as one really is and one's reality as it really is, that what produces that is a problem that is of such uh, degree and difficulty that it requires a consciousness or a, a, a consciousness of a certain sophistication, a free will to solve it. And so it's almost as if um, in order to be free, you must be bound. In order to have the ultimate freedom, you have to face the ultimate challenge. And the ultimate challenge is, how do you get this damn comet out of the sky? Um. <laughs> right. I, yeah, I mean, there's a kind of um, cosmic uh, aptness to, to what you're describing, right? Like, you, you fight um, on land, you fight a creature from the deeps, and then the next thing that you do is take to the skies. Uh, and it's by, you know, again, this kind of narrow escape. You, you leap out as Tifa and you grab hold of the rope, not the first try, but the last, you know, last moment when it swings back, you finally grab onto it and you, you are kind of uh, pulled to safety as the, as the airship uh, ascends. It, it's, it's cool, it's climactic, it's wonderful. Um, and like like you described, you, you think that you've kind of got the ultimate vehicle at this point. It's a big step up from the tiny Bronco uh, going around on the water. But uh, like you, um, I thought immediately of Chocobos. And so that's the first place I went was to the, uh, the Chocobo farm, actually, to try to see uh, what I can do with Chocobos now. Because one of the rooms in the high wind is um, like a, a Chocobo holding uh area so that's like that's the first thought i had as well i didn't go to see the sage yet up north but i went back to the original uh chocobo farm from uh the midgar continent um right by our old friend the zolom um anyway so it seems like this this moment here um on the one hand gives you great freedom um after that release from captivity, from, from limitation. But on the other hand, you know, it's, it's still very sad. Yeah, you, you've got Meteor hanging over you, this distorted world music uh, is playing. A and 
you don't have cloud, right? And so that's what I keep coming back to is like, what makes this part of the game so strange, um, you feel so sort of displaced, uh, is that this character you've probably been identifying with is not only not who you thought he was, uh, you might have had your suspicions about that for a while now, but but he's not even there. Like you can't even uh, uh, make him a part of your your team anymore. So so maybe yeah, all of that investment that you put in is just completely uh, lost, you know. And all the probably the best armor, the best material, yeah, we're we're probably on him. You, you've got to sort of um, find that thing which is lost, you know, and go go through that particular kind of. Uh, nightmare <laughs> which is another uh another one that i think everyone you know is, is sure to experience at some point um where, where something maybe the most valuable thing uh has gone missing and, and it's time to uh, go and and search for it search high and low right um and so having this new tool at your disposal um is only again, a means to, a, to an end, right, uh, of, of trying to recover something that you have lost. And this certainly is a game of law of losing things. We've just lost Ares as well, so Cloud and Ares, and let's not forget that. And uh, just before that, we lost our Materia. We had that stolen from us. We've seen characters have, you know, their friends, Biggs and Wedge, uh, stolen from them, lost, losing their homes, uh, Sector 7. I think it was lost and that, um, you know, I think what you were getting at is that this model sort of how you lose parts of your life that are meaningful to you and you lose the accompanying meaning in your life from those parts when they go. And that part of the symbol of getting an airship here is that what you have to learn to do to move forward in life rather than just focus on those losses and let them steal you into the past like an evil Dementor or like Booth Rotem again in the Aeneid where people live in the past, the traitor and a, a, a wife now married to a lesser man who is also a traitor and so lesser in all ways than his brother Hector to whom she was married. But that um, what you have to learn to do is explore so that you can rebuild. Um, and so what I think another part of this um, this uh, this getting this meta this <laughs> sorry this getting this <laughs> airship which is a metaphor is that once you've lost something well you better go find it and it might not look like how it once did because again we see the world symbolically right so if like you say lose a person who is a big part of the meaning in your life what you're going to go looking for at first is that person, but what you really need to look for is where to put that meaning. And when you first start seeking something, it's you're going to try and, again, seek what was already there rather than seeking to just fill up that place in your life. And I think that's part of what the, the airship accords to you because it's like Cloud is gone, Ares is gone, how are you going to fill up this time? We we immediately go to Chocobos. It's so it's so it, just to get Freudian on us. It's like we devolve to a set a sense of you know childhood. We go to like the mini game within the game, but it might also be long term thinking because getting that golden Chocobo is of course going to be something that's going to get us nice in the round, which is going to give us some major security later in the game. Oh yeah, and it's like the completionist aspect of it as well. You want to sort of get the thing which will enable you to get more things more quickly 
or something like that, right? It, that's that's the chocobos. It also happens to be like a really interesting uh, mini game, yeah, within within the larger quest and um, opens up certain avenues down the line. Uh, that makes me want to ask you a question. So based on this, this Christmas time that we just had and playing video games during it, uh, a question I put to my students during an Odyssey seminar when we were talking about Calypso's Ogygia and Visions of Heaven was that the thing we do when we're bored is what do we do? We look for something to do, like going to play a game. And so what is a game? It is literally freely choosing to put a set of obstacles in front of you that if it is a fun game will be challenging, but also possible to overcome if you use the full utmost of your skill and have the, which means have the appropriate attitude and implement known skills uh, necessarily in proper conjunction with acquiring skills during gameplay that uh, move one forward. And that you could even add that this is in some way salubrious with good games. And so what we like to do most as humans, and I would say what our inner Gaia is for aerosol and what is uh, the zone of proximal development, as Vygotsky says, so says Jordan Peterson, um, and is actually our vision of heaven is playing games, is overcoming obstacles, is pursuing obstacles. Um, and I think that that's, that's part of what these, these video games teach us, that what we do when we can do anything with our time when we're young is, is uh, within the constraints of being young, is solve the biggest problems possible. And I think what that's supposed to teach us as adults what I think I'm getting from this game now is what your vision of like sort of heaven is on earth is to pit yourself against the biggest possible obstacle and attempt to overcome it and hopefully get incremental success while doing so. You, you bring up Jordan Peterson there and yeah, that is uh, a, like a, uh, what's the word formulation um, that I've heard. I think in his discussions with, um, uh, I don't know who exactly, probably Joe Rogan or something like that, um, but maybe with other people too, or in other other podcasts, um, and all of that. Yeah, it does sound reasonable. I I like as far as game theorists go, the one that I think is really really interesting um, is Hoisinga, uh, um, the same author as the um, the Autumn of the Middle Ages. Uh, he was a, a really, really learned, uh, I guess, philologist, cultural historian from around the mid 20th century, I wanna say. And he has a short work called uh, Homo Ludens. So that's um, man, the player, right? The playing man, um, as opposed to Homo sapiens. So his whole thesis is basically like, play and games are way more complex and fundamental and interesting than um, historians, uh, scholars have, have given them credit for being and um, like are full of philosophical uh, implications, which he begins by sort of talking about how difficult it is to, to define games and play, um, which I think is a point that, that Wittgenstein makes too in, in his major works on, on language. He uses games as a, um, like major example for, for kind of taking apart some of Plato's uh, whole theory of, of language and forms and such. Um, anyway, just to like 
home in on on play, it seems to be something and games. It seems to be something that has engaged more and more like very uh, serious, very prominent scholars, uh, just even within the last um, you know century or so. And um, what they might say about this video game does seem to be yeah like that that aspect of um, creating a an immersive environment in which to face challenges in which to grow as characters um, in which to sort of play out a story um, actively and like through experience rather than simply through imagination um, the with you know the involvement of one's imagination all of that uh, seems really yeah special and um, powerful uh, the more that we are able to kind of articulate that process I think the more nuance the more mysteries will, will sort of emerge from that rather than sort of like figuring it all out you know <laughs> um, it does kind of bring us back to uh, some very very fundamental questions about human nature about our, our greatest narratives such as the Odyssey right which which are sort of um, things that were were told as a way to pass the time, right? And we see that enacted in the Odyssey when he's there um, among the Thyakians, right? They, they're uh, their singer um, these performs. Is it, do I have that right? He's, yes, yes, these knights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so there's, and you see this in Beowulf too. Um, you know, so epic traditions from from multiple backgrounds. Um, they they've got this. This kind of self-reflective quality about them—they they are aware that they are a um, a thing to be enjoyed in leisure time, a thing which uh, may enrich, may may teach, but ultimately is is a kind of uh, play, and uh, and that that is really worth um, thinking about, right? Worth reflecting upon it. And um, well, well, go, well go and ahead. if we think if we think of the evolution of man also being measured most recently by the evolution of communication and which will in the, the near future be measured by the, you know, the speed by which we, we increase technological innovation, then the ways by which we transmit and interact with stories also, also so show the evolution of sort of the consciousness of man. And so in this story, not only do we have sort of a, a, a weird story that, requires that we not only recognize sort of the archetypal story, but also how this one sort of changes or parasitizes it. But also we do this by playing a video game, not listening just to something. And we see it represented in front of us. And so, and, and we get to interact and make our own choices within it, which just makes me think of, the vehicle of information transmission, we're a more active driver, like a Gundam driver within a Gundam, which was such a popular idea while we were, uh, while we were growing up. And so it, it's just interesting to what extent we now can say why that is, right? Because we now know because of the work of Geoch, Payne's happen is effective neuroscience that there is a play circuit that humans have. So play is essential, especially for young people. We also now know that there's a leading theory that what your imagination exists to do is to run simulations so that your body doesn't have to, so that you don't die. Um, but that those are of course very unsophisticated simulations. So it's better to use a computer or to use animals 
instead. And in fact, your imagination has a host of problems because it can only represent so much. Uh, but yet you are built to actually act on those imaginary images so you can mislead yourself very easily. But the idea of a video game then seems to be to allow kids who want to play, so get that hit, um, to run abstractions and to, you know, run the best possible sort of game here or to run the best possible simulation, the simulation in which they are maximally successful with minimal possible loss. Like they lose time, they lose opportunity costs, but they, they don't have to experience that much physical pain or, and certainly not death. And just to see uh, to what extent that like, this is the perfect evolution of what it is we are made of and how we sort of cater to what it is that we are in the best possible fashion. And so it, I, I guess I'm just making a global comment on I think it is fascinating that this was the state of the art in 1997 and that it also from an evolutionary perspective makes sense what a video game is and that I guess we have a responsibility therefore to produce the best possible uh, games because that is how we transmit our culture or, or, you know, or even more than our culture, how we transmit to a young person what they are by showing them, you know, the proper values to embody by giving them a narrative through which to act, which gives them the opportunities to feel good about themselves and bad, depending on whether they make good choices or bad ones. Yeah, no, I think that's, it's really important. I think that it's, it's not a, a simple, like one size fits all sort of story either, right? Like we have this really crucial critique of the story embedded within it, uh, which to me, does seem like sort of an important, um, if not the most important uh, function of, of logical um, consciousness, right? Uh, sort of represented by like the Socratic approach to, to questioning when people seem to be pretty sure that they've got it all figured out, then along comes Socrates to, to learn from them, right? He wants to know, okay, so you got it figured out, so tell me. And you know, in the course of talking about it, they realize that there's much more to be um, to be understood and primarily about themselves usually right um, and and that's funny and that's enjoyable it's also unsettling it's also frustrating um, so all of that sort of thing I, I feel like is here um, presented for us the way that we're going to proceed now uh, is going to be through um, searching for like a place where the life stream emerges from from underground right that's like the hint that's kind of dropped um, sort of out of nowhere. We're all sort of like, oh, that's what we need to do. Um, if, if Cloud was buried under the earth at the North Pole, well, clearly he's going to be like smushed into the life stream and, and shot out at some distant location. <laughs> so let's go find that place. Um, sure, why not? Right. So there, there's, there's hope. There's um, desolation, of course, but there's also hope. And so uh, we're going we're gonna to proceed on on that basis here to uh to see the next the next chapter of this story it's uh as it unfolds and like you, you know, mentioned oh yeah go on i was gonna just, say two primitivisms on my part but i'll say them after okay just real like like you mentioned back at the beginning of this episode i think uh we do have a few exciting uh guests which are coming up here uh in the next few weeks so just kind of to keep an eye out for those um, 
we always are saying like, hey, we should research this more. We should find out more about that. Um, this is our attempt to uh, kind of model that process uh, and to uh, learn from people who know more about this stuff than we do. Yeah, and I was just going to say to the uh, those fallacious ways of thinking, which are natural. It's funny because I I heard North Cave when the people when the party members are like, yeah, he must have been spat out from live stream. And instead of thinking causally, like, well, from the north, they'll probably come out in the south. I think in terms of like how a stream works. Uh, no, my natural way was North Cave. Well, I should go up north, and that's why I ended up talking to the Chocobo Sage. But that um, let me see. That also happened in in another way, although I can't quite recall how at this particular moment. Let me see. What was it? So uh, thinking about that. Um, ah, no, I can't remember it though. Um, it, it's so clear. Just losing my head. Um, yeah. Well, in any case. I'll, I'll probably remember it later and maybe put it in the description. So, right on. What uh, mm -hmm. what should we end on here? Well, um, there are a number of little side quests which are sort of available at this point. Not maybe not even side quests, but uh, like places you can revisit now that you've got the airship at your disposal. Uh, so far, we've both gone after. Chocobo type places, um, but there's a few others. What is the place, the town, the area of the game that you are most excited to go and revisit next? Yeah, that's an interesting question because it, it sort of depends on what it is I want from the game because I guess I could say the Golden Saucer because I'm looking forward to doing some of the Chocobo racing and breeding, but I don't know how much I'm actually going to do that this time through, which is interesting to what extent I could be limiting my my pleasure in playing this game by trying to just, I, I guess, just limit my pleasure in playing this game, right? Like, I'm not, I don't want to play it quite as much as I did when I was younger. And so, you know, doing Chocobo stuff takes some time. So I'm wondering about that. But that's, you know, it's funny, just the desolation that we're currently feeling, the grief has sort of gotten to me. And it just, that's what I wanted to bring up next, that what that feeling leads me to want to do is to avoid the game because I can't really envision an ideal future. There's Meteor, there's Weapon, whereas Cloud is gonna be sort of a gnarly part of the game. And it makes me want to avoid it. But what's interesting is that if I really want to have as little desolation to deal with as little of that as possible, is I should just play through, get Cloud back, get him right, deal directly with the problem. And that it's funny that my natural response to the feeling is avoid because I don't like how the feeling feels. but if I want to look into the future better and produce a better future, I need to just deal with the problem. And that's perhaps also how the Chocobo should be, right? I should just try and play the game best. And again, like you were saying, try and do something that has the maximum rewards in the future. And perhaps even playing a game right has maximum rewards by pursuing, you know, by pursuing maximum rewards in a game, you also set yourself up for pursuing maximum rewards in life since the game models life and that's why we like the game and it also models uh you know or imitates the narrative structure of life which we like as well um but yeah i guess that's what i had to say on that yeah awesome i am also of all the things i could do right now the main thing i want to do is go and find cloud who's been lost yeah. right find him and 
and uh, help him recover here because yeah, the, the sooner he's back and involved in the party, right? The sooner that we can proceed with the story. And at this point in the game, I kind of don't remember what happens next. I might've said this already uh, because it's kind of been true for a while now, but like as much as I played this game as a kid, after a certain point in the storyline, I kind of forget what happens and like where it goes from there. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious to, to dig in a little better to this part of the game that I don't know as well. Uh, I recall, yeah, I that, recall this. I recall the second disc being a lot of side quest stuff, like you said, like a lot of chocobo time. Like you can spend a solid twenty hours uh, dealing with chocobo. So I, I wonder. Yeah, I've also forgotten to some extent what what happens in this part. I remember the first disc very vividly. I remember the very end very vividly, and dealing with chocobos very vividly. But I guess it's going to be dealing with these weapons at one place and another, and following them about and then making some big choices. All right. Sounds good. Well, um, I will look forward to digging back in with this and, and talking to you again next time. Can't wait. All right. See you soon. Okay.